House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. You are back in the House of Mystery, and we're talking about this mysterious world. And I'm Al Warren, Mr. David Rose Martino. <laughs> <laughs> the the donut killer is donut co-hosting killer. today. Yeah, Mr. Donut. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. I told you I I, I, I snuck a a munchkin. Yeah. A donut hole. Yeah. Well, I could I could just I could smell the donut from here. Yes. <laughs> you know it's going to be it's, it's going straight to your waist. You know it is. You know next time you do a it karate is. video, people are going to go, oh my god. Yeah, I know. You're going to have to wear, like, uh, get a girdle or something. Yeah, that's, that's a good idea. Tuck it in, you know, and then, then the people go, boy, he's in good shape for a yeah. man that age. It won't, it won't show on, on camera. No. See, there you go. But I don't that's know if you'd be idea. able to move around very quick. with. That's true. I might have to speed up the, uh, yeah. the film or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have to cut out that part. Cover it up. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Well, um, uh, uh, another great book we're covering today, and we're, it's kind of, it's a true story, so we're, we're covering history. Okay. So kids, you're going to learn something, you know. Um, so we're talking about the scandalous Hamiltons. And, uh, we've got the, uh, author here, uh, Bill Schaefer. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Bill, interesting story. Uh, how, how does one, come across such a story like where where did it fall into your laps like how how would you come across this and get into writing uh, yeah the um uh, the story sort of found me more than i found it i live on the upper west side of manhattan and uh, my wife and i had relocated to a um a new apartment about five years ago and i was returning home from an errand uh walking on riverside avenue and at the corner of Riverside and 76th Street, I, I came across this fountain. Um, it's called the Hamilton Fountain. And it, it, it stopped me in my tracks because it's, it's quite beautiful. And I thought, this looks like something you would see at Grand Central Terminal. I do architectural research, ex, uh, historical architectural research. And I read the Parks Department plaque quickly, and it said it was a scandal involving a great-grandson of Robert Ray Hamilton. He left money in his will for this fountain, and it was designed by Warren and Wetmore. And Warren and Wetmore are the architects of Grand Central Terminal. And so as I was walking the rest of the way home, I was thinking, why would Warren and Wetmore, who were, you know, some of the most prominent architects in the early part of the 20th century, I was thinking, why are they doing this little fountain in this obscure kind of corner of Riverside Park? And why would they, why would they take that on? And so just my own curiosity led to a couple of Google searches and I started reading about this scandal um, and there were a number of blog posts about it, nothing in any kind of long form. And the stories kind of weren't consistent from one to another, or uh, as it turns out, some were more accurate than others. But it led me to start looking into the scandal more. And once I started going there and started unearthing more information, um, I thought, well, surely there must be a book about this somewhere. 
And when I looked for one, I, I couldn't find one. So uh, I, I took it upon myself to write it. So that, that's the, the genesis of how it came about. I guess you have to go back in, in time and go through a lot of newspapers and uh, different things like, okay, so this is, this is occurring. Um, the crime was 1889. Right. So, um, let's, let's talk about, uh, maybe give us the basic rundown of the story and what happened. What was the scandal? So, uh, Robert Ray Hamilton, a great grandson of Alexander Hamilton, he was a, a prominent New Yorker. He was a, an attorney, a state legislator in Albany, uh, and a real estate developer. The Hamilton family uh, at that time owned a lot of uh, uh, real estate in New York. Um, his name was Robert Ray Hamilton. Everybody called him Ray. Um, at one point, Ray owned 32 different either properties or building lots in Manhattan and Brooklyn. And I write in the beginning of the book that the Hamilton name at that time was a little bit akin to the Kennedy name today. It was uh, Hamilton's and their and the descendants of Alexander Hamilton were all prominent New Yorkers. They were uh, financiers, prominent business people, philanthropists. And so it wasn't uncommon to To see stories about various Hamiltons, kind of as as you would go through a newspaper on a day to day basis. So Ray um, um, met a woman, uh, Eva, who was uh, 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 raised in uh, the the backwoods of Northeast Pennsylvania, and she could not have come from diff- more different circumstances than Ray. In that uh, she was born to an itinerant woodcutter, guys who were cutting down trees so their railroad tracks could be laid to haul coal out of the what was called the Wyoming Valley uh, in Pennsylvania. He was an alcoholic, moved his six children around from town to town, wherever work, uh, um, you know, could be found. She didn't go to school past the fourth grade. The consensus in her village was that she was, quote, not going to be bright. Um, and somehow Ray and Eva met. And that somehow was actually, uh, they met in what was sometimes referred to as a body house. Uh, Eva was a sex worker, a, a prostitute. Um, it wasn't uncommon for men of Ray's stature at that time to uh, visit a prostitute on, on their way home from, you know, their day at the office and drinks at the union league or the university club with their friends. And that's how you, you might end an evening. Um, but they met in 1885 and that relationship, um, was steady for four years until 1889. Steady, but, but infrequent in that Ray was in Albany a lot of the time. Uh, on state business. He had a law practice up there as well and was basically only in the city, New York City, on weekends. Um, he provided for Eva. She, you know, was a bit of a clothes horse, a fashionista. He was always buying her clothes and jewelry, um, giving her money when she needed it. But Eva wanted more. She really wanted to be Mrs. Robert Ray Hamilton. Uh, Ray was pretty indifferent to that idea, and 
after four years, Eva concocted a plan to um, to get what she wanted. Um, she decided to. Her plan was to tell Ray that she was pregnant with his child, and that um, the the right and moral thing for him to do was to marry her. Um, Eva never was pregnant. However, she she actually purchased the baby at what was called a, uh, a baby farm, uh, which at that time they were basically illegal orphanages. Midwives would take in babies if a woman gave birth and and either couldn't or or wouldn't keep the baby. She could just give it to a midwife, and the midwife would turn around and sell them. Um, for $10, basically, was the going rate. No questions asked, no formalities of going through an orphanage, anything like that. The unfortunate part of that is that babies who weren't deemed desirable enough or couldn't be sold were off, were almost always victims of infanticide. So uh, they were they were left to to die basically. So that's that was a very sad part of the research. I didn't know anything about what was termed baby farming at the time, um, but that's that's how uh, it, it came about that that Ray married her. So they became Mister and Mrs. Robert Ray Hamilton. So he's from a prominent family and he's got a reputation and a name. So when he marries someone like this. How was his family and friend towards her? The, um, the, nobody knew about it. Um, Eva came back with this baby. She, she knew that Ray was going to be away for most of the summer. You would think, how are you going to conceal a pregnancy from somebody you see fairly regularly? Uh, he was away for most of the summer. And for the, her last uh, few months of pregnancy, Women had at that time what was called a laying in period. You could go, it was essentially bed rest in kind of the last two to three months, basically last trimester. You could go to a hospital um, and have your laying in period, but most often uh, women would go to either their mother's house or an aunt or a sister. Um, and because Eva's family was all in upstate New York and Elmira, uh, she said, I'm not going to be here for the last three months of 1888. When I come back around New Year's, I will have our child with us. And so she did return with this child basically right before New Year's of 1889. Ray was introduced to the child that was, uh, quote, his. And so a week later, they got married. They, they went to uh, Patterson, New Jersey. Uh, and were married by a, uh, a minister. There were no family, no friends uh, uh, present. And in fact, the minister's wife and mother-in-law served as the two witnesses to the wedding. And Ray's own brother, who, who he was pretty close with, didn't even find out about it until six months later when Ray told his father, who then subsequently told his brother. So uh, their wedding was about as quiet and hush-hush as one could one could imagine. But that, that that must have been, how did he keep it secret sort of thing? I guess he never, he wasn't close with them or they didn't come by and visit him at the house or did they not live together? Well, actually what happened is a couple of months after um, 
their wedding. Nobody visited them that I know of in that brief amount of time. But Ray, um, he loved the outdoors. He was a big hunter and fisherman, loved the West. He had traveled there by himself when he got out of law school. And so he decided to relocate Eva and their baby and a baby nurse that they hired to San Diego. And he was going to San Diego. The trains had just started arriving to San, San Diego in the 1880s. It had gone from this sleepy little place to kind of a booming town with lots of beautiful oceanfront, you know, real estate available for purchase. And um, they were only there, though, for four months. Uh, Eva uh, uh, didn't like it there. She lost uh, uh, about 40 pounds. She weighed 150 pounds when she left. Uh, she was basically 100 when she returned. Um, she was drinking heavily um, and it just wasn't working. So they decided to return east. They decided to stop in Atlantic City for a month before they resettled in New York. And it was when they arrived in San Diego that Ray let his family know that he indeed was married. How did she integrate into um, into basically high society once once um, she was uh, this relationship was then known? Well, it, uh, she, the the short answer is that she didn't integrate because they had arrived in Atlantic City after being uh, the first of August, basically after being married for about six months. Um, and they kept to themselves, the four of them, the Ray, Eva, the baby, her name was Beatrice and the baby nurse. But after about a, a month, uh, they were due to return to New York, actually on August 26. And the morning that they were due to leave, they were both up early packing. And Ray said, basically, I want a divorce. This isn't working for me. It was, you know, they had never really spent that much continuous time together. Uh, once Eva was his wife, her demands for clothes and jewelry and money only increased. And uh, uh, Ray said, uh, listen, I'll, I'll give you $5,000 a month. I'll care for uh, Beatrice in, in, or sorry, $5,000 a year. Uh, I'll care for Beatrice in whatever way she needs, but we're done. And, uh, Eva refused to accept that. They started arguing uh, uh, quite loudly, which was had become common. And the baby nurse, a uh, woman named Marianne Donnelly, who was also a pretty heavy drinker herself, uh, got into the middle of the argument. And she had thought that something wasn't quite right with Eva and this whole baby thing. Uh, Eva had a couple of friends that when Ray wasn't around, she would hang around with. And she threatened to basically spill the beans and, and tell Ray her theory of what happened. So, or, or what she, how she thought that Eva acquired this baby. Uh, Eva became incensed. They were, Eva and the nurse were both drunk by 10 o'clock in the morning. Eva sent the nurse out at 7 a.m. to buy a bottle of whiskey, uh, which they both were drinking from. And the, uh, the argument was settled by Eva picking up a knife and stabbing the nurse. Wow. Um, Mr. Intense intestines by an eighth of an inch, but she collapsed on the floor in a pool of blood. 
the police were called and Eva was uh, hauled away to the police station. So before there was ever a chance to kind of, quote, integrate into society, she, she was arrested. And it, it was that stabbing. Everything I've sort of told you to this point is basically the first chapter of the book. <laughs> but but that, that stabbing incident occurred about lunchtime on Monday, August 26th. By that evening, reporters from the New York newspapers, Philadelphia newspapers, Baltimore newspapers, essentially who could ever, who could get on a train and be there by late afternoon was there. And the next morning, headlines were splashed across the country, front page headlines about with the Hamilton name in it that Hamilton's wife stabs baby nurse, basically, uh, some variation of that. And it set off quite the scandal. Here was the Hamilton name in the newspapers for all of the wrong reasons. Well, do you think um, that before the murder that uh, Ray ever had, if he ever suspected that maybe this wasn't his child? I, I don't think he did. It was it was never alluded to. I I think that... I think that he was just kind of out there living his own life. He was 36 when they got married, which was a pretty late in age for particularly somebody of his social status at that time uh, in the late 1800s. You married in your 20s. You married a, a woman who was from your own social class. Your families knew each other, all of that kind of thing. I I think that there that he didn't suspect it and i don't think he ever i don't think he ever cared to look at it deeper than kind of what the situation was in, in front of her and just sorry one one quick um aside the nurse ended up uh, living she wasn't murdered um she she ended up surviving and she actually kind of factors into the story a little later down the road so it wasn't a murder but it was Eva was charged with atrocious assault was the uh, crime she was charged with. But I don't think Ray was indifferent to the relationship and everything uh, about Eva, I think, for a long time. And so I, I don't I don't have any evidence that it ever dawned on him that this might not be everything she's saying it is. So when she was charged and then sent in and and she was about to face trial, did uh, Ray stand behind her like was the was he uh, with her he absolutely did not because uh ray had some very well connected friends in new york who took it upon themselves to contact uh contact uh, a guy named thomas f burns tommy burns was his name he was the chief of detectives for the new york city police department quite a character in his own name um he um it was said that six guys couldn't pull a heist in New York without two of them being in Tommy's pocket. Uh he worked both sides of the fence. He had a salary of five thousand dollars a year, but a bank account in his wife's name that held two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, uh, which he explained were gratuities paid to him per, from Wall Street businessmen for keeping uh, them safe. Um and uh, but Tommy knew everybody. And, and three days uh, after Eva was charged stabbing, uh, he is the one who found out that uh, Beatrice was not Ray's child, that um, 
she had been purchased. That, of course, if the headlines about the stabbing were, you know, uh, a big deal once this came out, now it's it's just front page reading every day. And this is going on for months. When we think of today, a, you know, a celebrity scandal that, you know, satellite trucks are lining somebody's street and everybody's, you know, tweeting conspiracy theories and people are, are you know, coming forward as having inside information about the whole thing. That was all going on then. All of these, all of the stuff that we would think of today is going on then. The only media outlet, though, was the daily newspaper. And um, the New York World, which was Joseph Pulitzer's paper, um, and was really kind of the, it was the largest paper in New York. There were 19 daily newspapers, English speaking, English language um, daily newspapers in New York at the time. His was the biggest, and he really championed the common man, the working man. And so this was a tailor-made story for Pulitzer because it, you know, it pitted the haves and the have-nots. And he was always publishing stories on on wealthy and privileged people getting their comeuppance, you know, as it were. And so this this kind of had everything. Um, and it was... Uh, um, it was a big deal at that time for a, for a story to command a full column on page one. Ray and Eva were full columns, page one, every day for months, and stories that even continued into the interior pages, which was virtually unheard of at the time. So it was a, it was a big deal. But to answer your question, Ray knew about 72 hours after the stabbing that the whole thing was a scam, and he absolutely did not stand by Eva, didn't even come close in her courtroom appearances. He wouldn't look at her. She would reach out to him to try to explain herself. And he just, uh, he literally and figuratively turned his back on her. So did did he know at that time too she was married to another man? That came out shortly after the, the fake, the quote fake baby um, uh, came out in that, while she was in this relationship with Ray, she was in a common law marriage with the best way to describe him is basically kind of a drunken buffoon, um, a guy named Josh Mann, who um, um, she thought she was attracted to in some way. Uh, she kind of felt sorry for him, I think. Uh, and his mother was involved in the in it as well. So it was Ray, Josh, and um, and his mother, a woman named Anna Swinton. But Ray, uh, the when Ray wasn't around and he wasn't around a lot, she would be with Josh. And in fact, when she would ask Ray for money, quite often in those four years, uh, that money would go to support Josh. So, and that all came out in sort of litigation down the road, bank records and accounts in her and her name with Josh as the beneficiary and all kinds of things. So Ray didn't know any of it. So this must have kind of um, hurt his reputation. It um, it really did. He was, um, uh, he stayed at a friend's house, you know, with the curtains drawn. Uh, he couldn't go out. Uh, 
everybody, you know, the, the question in the press basically every day was essentially, and how can a, such a smart man be so stupid? And everybody was trying to get at, you know, kind of what was he thinking? But uh, he never addressed the press directly. His friends would would address them uh, from time to time saying, you know, he feels bad, you know, whatever. But um, his reputation was pretty well shot. So um, to the extent that uh, the following year in 1890, he said basically the heck with it and, and moved out west. He In June of 1890, he... Uh, resettled in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Did, um, while this was happening, did Ray's family stand behind him? They, they did. Um, uh, there are a few letters from uh, his father to Ray that are still around. And his father says, you know, basically after Eva's trial and her conviction, he wrote to Ray to say he was proud of, you know, Ray's comportment and demeanor throughout all of it. Privately, I don't, they they weren't so pleased, only because that's not the way Hamilton's got their name in the newspaper, basically. But, um, you know, it's still a father backing his son. So, um, and his brother also, uh, you know, stood by his side, but, but his reputation clearly had, had taken a beating. How did she end up? She was, she was convicted of this, right? She was convicted and sentenced to three years in the Trenton State Prison. Uh, She served about two years. She figured out uh, while she was there that there was a uh, pay-for-play pardon system with basically the corrupt New Jersey governor, a guy named Leon Abbott at the time. And uh, if you had the right amount of money and had the right lawyer, um, you could get a pardon. And it, they, the going rate was basically $1,000. Uh, she found an attorney that, that the governor liked or who was in the governor's pocket, basically, paid him $1,000, and she um, was granted a pardon after two years. Wow. Now, now, if I'm reading right, what happened to, to, to Ray himself? Yeah, I, it's... I don't want to make it, uh, I guess uh, there's no other way to, to say it without it sort of being a spoiler, but Ray went to, um, uh, to Jackson Hole, uh, and his intention was to, he was only there a couple of weeks before he started working on a new, on a new real estate development project, basically. He wanted to build a grand hunting lodge. The trains, that were, you know, Yellowstone by that time was a national park. Trains from the East Coast were going out west more frequently. It was easier to get to. And, you know, a lot of, you know, Wall Street guys, you know, who today say, you know, let's all get together and go out hunting and fishing and all that stuff. They, they did that then. And, but there were, but it was a, a still pretty desolate out in Jackson Hole. And, he wanted to build a lodge that basically rich Wall Street guys could come and kind of live comfortably while they were out there hunting and fishing. Uh, he, he, just a few weeks after he was there, he arrived in June of 1890. He met a guy named John Dudley Sargent, who was also an Easterner of sort of 
shamed reputation. He was a long lost cousin of uh, the painter John Singer Sargent. The Sargent uh, family was a East Coast, Maine and Massachusetts moneyed family. Um, John was a bit of a ne'er-do-well and he had moved out there with his young family and he had homesteaded um, uh, the property on, on Coulter Bay. If you or any of your listeners have, have been to um, uh, Jackson Hole, Coulter Bay is probably, you know, it's one of the most desirable pieces of real estate on Jackson Lake directly across from the Tetons. It's breathtaking. He homesteaded that. And once Ray realized, you know, he, he had the best piece of property out there. He was also an East Coast guy. They partnered up to build a hunting lodge called Merrymere. Uh, the construction was going along well. Ray went off, uh, decided that it was going well enough that he could go off on a little hunting trip by himself. All of the guys working at the camp said, don't do that. You don't know the territory well enough. <laughs> and Ray insisted on doing it. He went out and uh, I'll just say met with unfortunate circumstances um, and never unfortunate and for a long time mysterious circumstances. Um, and that was essentially the end of them. I'll leave the rest of it for, for <laughs> people reading the book. Um, yeah. But that kicked off a whole nother um, set of circumstances involving Eva. Well, yeah, because right away that leads to suspicion of she did something to him or had something done to him, right? It, that, that was definitely uh, one suspicion. Uh, John Sargent wasn't, you know, by all accounts the most, you know, put-together guy. Some people thought maybe their business relationship had gone sour. Uh, some people thought that Ray kind of uh, might have faked these circumstances to just go off and get lost for a couple of years and kind of come back with a new identity. There were all kinds of crazy theories floating around out there, but the 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 main thing that happened was because there was a marriage certificate between Ray and Eva. Obviously, Ray had, or maybe not so obviously, Ray had, as soon as the stabbing and conviction had happened, he cut her out of her will, out of his will, 100%. But at the time, a woman had what was called dower rights, and regardless of what was on uh, uh, stated in a will, um, a woman was entitled to at least in it varied by state, but in New York it was basically it was a one third of the entire estate, and the Hamilton family, you know, uh, was not eager uh, in any way, shape, or form to give Eva a penny. She challenged it all in court, and that set off uh, a whole new months-long saga of newspaper stories. You know, she loved attention. She loved um, being the center of everything. And so the newspapers would report, you know, what she was wearing every day to court, how she made her court entrances. If if whatever was happening in court, you know, uh, might be... It, it would be to her sympathy to, you know, cry or show tears. She would turn on the tears. 
if she needed to be indifferent or angry, she could be that too. So it was all in a way kind of an act for her, but she really wanted the money and the Hamilton family um, went to great lengths to prevent that. They were basically saying because she was in a common law marriage, her marriage to Ray was invalid. Um, and eventually it went to the New York State Supreme Court. Um, they sided with um, Ray's family. Ray's family was represented by a gentleman named Elihu Root, who uh, who at that time was uh, one of the top attorneys in New York. He was um, very well connected. He went on to be McKinley's Secretary of War and then Teddy Roosevelt's Secretary of War and then Secretary of State. He won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1912. But in the 1890s, he was a really a top flight New York lawyer, basically. And and he's the one that was able to have the um, Hamilton family prevail after it was ruled against her in, in New York State Supreme Court. She came up with one other plan. She had a forged document saying that Ray had promised all this money to her. And the Hamilton family said, basically, enough's enough, and gave her $10,000 and, you know, said, never darken our door again. And um, that, that in the end, is what settled it. So, um, yeah, she, she wanted what she wanted. Yeah. Why didn't Ray divorce her? Um, because he, the divorce was in the works when he left for, so this, the incident happened in, uh, August of 1889, right? In January, he started divorce proceedings. Divorces weren't very common at that time. Uh, it took a long time for them to wind their way through the courts. They, they were very expensive in terms of legal fees and all of that stuff. So, there was no such thing as kind of a quickie divorce. So he had initiated divorce proceedings in um, uh, January of 1890. But when these unfortunate circumstances occurred in August of 1890, um, the divorce was not yet final. So he was technically still married to her, if you were to believe the marriage certificate. Why didn't he just have her killed? <laughs> well, do, do we? You know, I have not been asked that question. Before. Well, you know, he's got yeah. connections. He's got that. You know, he's got detectives. And... He, he definitely had. Well, you know, actually, when you know when he went away to Jackson Hole, she was in prison, and so I'm not sure how he could have arranged. Something like that while she was behind bars, I suppose it's possible. Yeah. But um, when he left for Jackson Hole, she was safely incarcerated. And it was, you know, due to be another two and a half years mm -hmm. before she would be out. And who would? nobody thought that the circumstances would come up where she would be fighting with his family uh, over his estate. Do we know what happened to the baby? We do, and I, I, I write about it. You know, I it, the entire book took a, about two and a half years to research, and during most of that time, I was on the hunt for what happened to Beatrice, um, and 
a lot of dead ends trying to figure that out. She was had several guardians right, you know, uh, from 1990 or sorry, 1890 through the first decade of the um, of the 20th century. I finally found somebody who was uh, I thought was I had a good shot of being, you know, connected to her family and I contacted them. They were sort of by marriage. And I asked if any of her descendants um, would like to speak to me, if there were any documents, photographs, anything. And it came back that uh, that the family was uh, knew that Beatrice had a very difficult life uh, in, the, in her first years. Uh, she never spoke about it, uh, never wanted to speak about it. And out of respect for her privacy, they declined it. So out of respect for their wishes, I, I did, um, I, I abided by that. I do know that she basically changed her name uh, as early as maybe when she was 16 or, or by the age 18. Um, she moved about as far away from New York as you could and remained in, in the United States. And by all accounts, you know, had a healthy and full life. She had children and grandchildren and, you know, lived, lived to an old age. So, um, but out of respect for the family's wishes. And as you read the book, you know, poor Beatrice is just, you know, what a way to, to, uh, begin life. So I respected that. Now, uh, one of the things that, uh, seems to be really important to you, especially in this book, because even in part of the title is you talk about the uh, dawn of tabloid journalism and stuff. So uh, maybe talk a little bit about that, what what you mean by that. Right. So um, when I began researching for the, the researching the book and trying to tell the story in full, I was able to, uh, because all of Eva's courtroom stuff was appealed to the New York State Supreme Court. You know, there was the initial criminal trial and then all of her civil action. All the uh, testimony and courtroom documents from her criminal trial were rolled into her civil action, and that was all in the Supreme Court. So when I found those court documents, and there's roughly a 1,000 pages of them, Everything was there from a sort of officialdom point of view. Uh, I also found a box of letters in the New York uh, State or the New York City Historical Society um, of people, nothing in Ray's hand, but friends and family members who had written to him while all of this was going on, expressing their feelings about it all. And then I started looking at newspaper accounts and the more newspaper accounts uh, I found the more that popped up. And so one of the things that just from a research point of view, I was comparing the newspaper accounts to what was happening in the courtroom, you know, a newspaper that said, so-and-so said this, and then I could check the courtroom testimony to see if that was the case. So sometimes they did report Accurately, I would say there was not a lot of fact checking going on uh, in newspaper reporting at that time, particularly with the more sensational New York papers, the world, the New York Sun, uh, but even to a degree, the Tribune and the New York Times. Um, and it hit me that 
that really the newspaper accounts and how how or what a media does what the media does with a celebrity scandal intrigued me so you know readers of the book will see i a lot of headlines in there that uh, sensational headlines from newspapers how the story was happening versus what was being reported in the newspapers and how each side particularly when it got to the civil action Ray's family versus Eva's side were used the media to uh, try to manipulate the media to kind of win in the in the court of public opinion um, and that fascinates me to that in terms of, it, as I said earlier, it's really not that different than it is now. There are more outlets now, certainly, but all of the all of the ways that that we we take in news, um, um, you know, it, it was much the same then. And the fact that when you look at newspapers, then most of them were published as eight page editions. And a front page, there's no photographs, sometimes a little kind of pen and ink illustration might be on a front page, but a front page might consist of 20 sort of short stories. So for a, a story, as I said, to command a full column on page one was very, well, it was rare. And Ray and Eva were full columns, front page, I mean, every day for months on end. And, you know, if you imagine at that time picking up your local paper, you know, that's it was clearly kind of the, the, going to be the first thing you read about. And the, new, the newspapers couldn't get enough of their story. It, it was it was, you know, everything that makes a great story in terms of the haves and have nots and the privileged and unprivileged and these crazy circumstances that that kept unfolding almost like a sort of a melodrama, you know, and um, I, I was just taken by that. And I really wanted to make sure that how the media and that that was relatively new um, in terms of of the way newspapers told the story, um, the sort of sensationalism um, of of not just this story, but anything that could be sensationalized generally was. There were more people who could read um, in the 1890s than could 50 years before. Um, and it was, it was a, um, a, it was an outlet for, for somebody who just wanted to take in news on a daily basis. Well, it's, it's interesting that um, you have to wonder uh, if it would have, how it would do today. Like today's got, similar uh, there's so many more there's so much more access to this sort of stuff now with the internet right all that stuff you have kind of have to wonder i mean well you know I mean, the um where eva's criminal trial was after the stabbing it was in a little town in new jersey called may's landing which is about 20 miles 15 20 miles inland from atlantic city and it was the county seat of atlantic county and the the courthouse is still there. It's been added onto in the wings, but the original courthouse is still there. And it, it's a, you know, a, it's a courthouse that sat maybe 75 people or so. 
had, you know, large windows around, wrapped around the building. And when Eva's trial was going on, you know, you couldn't get, people would line up both locals, uh, vacationers from Atlantic City were coming up to the trial, uh, you know, Ray's friends came down from New York for it. And it was such, the, the courtroom was so crowded, not only standing room, they had to close the doors, they would open the windows on the side and newspaper reporters would be on step ladders, you know, listening through the window of what was going on in the court. And, you know, if you went down that little main street in Mays Landing today, you know, I mean, that would be just be filled with satellite trucks and reporters doing, you know, stand-ups outside of, of the, um, you know, as people entered the courtroom, Here's the test, you know, the testimony is expected to go till four o'clock this afternoon or whatever it is. And then, you know, rushing people when they came out to get their reaction of what happened inside. It's it's just it was Hmm. all of the same thing. And oh, Nancy Grace would be sitting in there. (laughs) They all would be. They all would be. And, you know, it's as a funny little aside there. There's the courthouse. There was the county jail right behind it, and next to it was the sheriff's house. Uh, it was a guy named Smith Johnson who was the sheriff at the time, and um, um, his wife, after Eva was convicted, she had two weeks until she had to report to Trenton. And so the sheriff's wife, Jenny, had taken a liking to her and said, you don't have to stay in the jail. You can stay basically in the third floor of our house, kind of a dormer attic kind of thing. And there were two young boys uh, living in the house. And one of them, I don't know if you've ever seen the series Broadway Empire and Nucky Thompson, who was the prohibition kingpin of Atlantic City. um, It was based on the real character, Nucky Johnson, who was one of the little boys of Sheriff Johnson who was living in that house. So, um, Eva and Nucky uh, shared quarters for a couple of weeks <laughs> there in 1889. So, um, wow. but you know, that was just, and actually when the sheriff took her to, um, uh, had to take her to Trenton, basically you, you could go get on a train and go about whatever it was, 40 miles down the road to Trenton and be there in 45 minutes he took her on a coach. They took a train northward to Elizabeth, New Jersey, transferred another train coming back down, all in an effort to throw off the press. They left uh, at uh, 4 o'clock in the morning. But, the, you know, the press, as the press would do, is is on stakeout. And so they managed to get on the trains and all of that stuff. And, you know, they wrote the story saying Sheriff Johnson took a roundabout way to take, you know, Eva Hamilton to jail thinking that he would throw off reporters. Well, reporters are, you know, basically too savvy for that and wondered why, you know, he spent the taxpayer money to buy these yeah. train tickets and take this roundabout way when they were basically, you know, one car behind him in the train the entire time. So, you know. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he actually interviewed with, uh, or she interviewed with Nellie Bly, you say. I remember we've... We've talked about her on the show before. Uh, what did she say in her interview? Did she did you, did she say anything kind of shocking? Or? <laughs> she did. She um, well, 
you know, obviously your listeners are are familiar with Nellie Bly, basically credited with in, you know, inventing investigative reporting. And, you know, she, Nellie Bly loved to get the side of stories that nobody else was telling, right? And she went down to Trenton because now the Hamilton family had put a full court press on on the press to say that basically Ray's a good guy. He got mixed up with a terrible woman. And she showed up, Nellie Bly showed up unannounced at Trenton um, convinced the, um, um, the head keeper of the jail to let her in, interview Eva. Eva was not ready for it, but, uh, you know, anybody who wanted to listen to her side of the story, you know, she was all for it. So Eva said that the baby was actually um, a friend of Ray's, was the daughter of a friend of Ray's who had gotten who was a married man who had gotten a woman uh, uh, pregnant and needed to protect his marriage. So Ray agreed that he would raise the baby and paid Eva extra money to do that. Um, he, uh, she said that Ray had been, um, uh, had forced her to have uh, an abortion twice before Beatrice was born. Um, she, I forget what I, I can't think off the top of my head, but there was one other. It'll come to me in a sec. But she just was spinning yarns. Basically, Eva was a storyteller all of her life, um, and uh, oh, she said that she was. It was her who initiated the divorce with Ray because he she had already suspected that after eight months of marriage that he was being unfaithful to her. So (laughs) none of this, I don't know about the unfaithfulness, but the other parts of her story were, you know, soundly refuted in, in court, but, you know, Eva was, you know, some people that have read the book have empathy for Eva in that she does a lot of terrible things, uh, but, you know, at that time, there were not very many opportunities for women uh, in the first place, particularly women who uh, lacked an education. And you you kind of did what you needed to do to get by. Um, and Eva was one of those people. There were all kinds of scams and and confidence games and stuff like that that, that went on at that time. And it was people who who didn't have money, who saw all these gilded age, you know, robber barons and industrialists building these giant mansions and having these, you know, incredible art collections. And on one hand, you know, they would look at awe at those people, but the other hand was like, well, why do they have that? And I don't, they must have so much that they can afford to give me some. Uh, And however way they could kind of manage to do that, you know, they, they would try and Eva kind of fell into that category. Um, so, uh, she, she told whatever stories she needed to tell to advance her station in life, basically. Human nature. It's still the same. Human nature doesn't change. (laughs) You know, and after, after Marianne Donnelly, um, recovered from her stabbing, it came, she had to testify in court and, 
it came out that she was a pretty uh, um, uh, mean and ornery alcoholic herself. After she recovered, she was paid. There were there were basically freak shows. They were called dime museums, and there was a number of them on the Bowery in New York. And one of the biggest was a place called the Globe Museum. And the Globe Museum hired uh, Marianne Donnelly to sit in a room for an hour, um, show off the dress with all the slash marks in it from the knife, and, <laughs> and answer questions about what happened that morning. And on the stool next to her was she had a, the bottle of whiskey that her and Eva were drinking, drinking from that morning. <laughs> and she was paid $75 a week to do it, which at that time was was a pretty good chunk of dough. And she basically said, I'm a little bit embarrassed to do it, but clearly I'm not going to work as a baby nurse anymore. <laughs> and, you know, I got to get by. So that whole kind of getting by is, is what people did. Yeah. Well, you know, um, pay me 75 bucks. I'd wear a dress and talk to right? <laughs> my God. And, and you know, what kind of baby nurse is drinking at seven in the morning whiskey, but Hey, <laughs> not being judgmental. Here. Yeah. Well, this is fascinating, fascinating story. Great book. Me- recommend it for everybody. We'll have this up on our website. People can find it with one click. And of course it's called the scandalous Hamiltons. And our guest has been the author, Bill, Schaefer. Thank you for being here, Bill. Oh, thanks so much, guys. I really appreciate you having me. Thanks, Bill. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.